Welcome to Engelberg Center Live, a collection of audio from events held by the Engelberg Center on Innovation, Law, and Policy at NYU Law. This episode features introductory remarks to the Technology, Law, and Policy Clinic at 10 event from Professors Jason Schultz and Jeannie Fromer, as well as the panel discussion of TLP alums providing perspectives from clinical teaching. It was recorded on November 10th, 2023. I am so excited about today. It is gonna be so much fun to celebrate uh, the clinic um, at 10. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm particularly excited about is, you know, when I came here from Berkeley uh, 10 years ago, one of the things about Berkeley, one of the reasons that convinced me there that we could do a clinic and to come and teach the clinic there when I went, was that there was so much support across the faculty. Um, Any of you who know clinics, and we'll talk about this on the first panel, know that in some places, and for, you know, complicated historical reasons, the clinical faculty and the non-clinical faculty don't always see eye to eye. They don't always understand what each other does. Um, and, and, and so there's a conversation that has to happen to figure that out. And some schools, you know, for various reasons, have been able to figure it out in certain ways that are really positive and productive. Others are figuring it out kind of more slowly. And at Berkeley, we had really figured it out around um, what the public interest in technology was. Like, why was this conversation important? Why should students be doing this work? Why is this important to be part of the educational mission of the law school? And when I came to NYU, that was one of my big questions, was like, where's the conversation? (laughs) And how's it going to go here? Um, And one of the most wonderful things uh, about it was that I found such a resonance not only with the clinical colleagues here, uh, but the non-clinical colleagues who work in IP and tech. And one of those amazing colleagues is Jeannie Frommer. And Jeannie is... You know, for those who know her, an amazing teacher, just a prolific, fantastic, brilliant scholar, but also just like a wonderful person who cares deeply and thinks like about the implications of her work in all these just different and important ways. Um, and the ways that it impacts society and the world we want to live in. And to have colleagues like that just meant the world to me and was one of the big reasons why I wanted to come and why I wanted to create something here. Um, She's also now officially, I don't know, are you my boss? I can't tell. No, No, okay. (laughs) I don't know. Um, No, but she's officially the vice dean. uh, Is it for or of intellectual life? Comma, Com- uh, sorry, comma. I should know this. Uh, the vice dean, comma, intellectual life. I'm not sure how that parses. Um, but uh, but I think it's really really fantastic that she is for many reasons, but also because um, and we'll talk more about this today and, and kind of uh, in general, which is that these issues around IP tech, all the stuff going on right now, could not be more prominent and in some ways more um, central to the, the conversations around and the questions of what work we do in the world and how the world is impacted by our work and those in our fields. Um, So I would like to invite Jeannie to come up and uh, kick us off for the day. Jason, thank you so much for that um, generous intro. Um, I'm honored to be here to welcome everyone to NYU Law's Technology, Law, and Policy Clinic celebrating 10 years. Um, So Jason introduced me, and I will stick on four of my titles, not because I'm obsessed with titles, but because it really underscores how 
Jason and this clinic is so central to um, the things that happen at NYU Law School. So as Jason said, I'm Vice Dean, comma, Intellectual Life. Um, I am also a professor of intellectual property here. I co-direct the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy with Jason and a number of others here. Um, and uh, most importantly, I get to be a colleague and friend um, to um, Jason Schultz. And every single one of these roles makes me feel so fortunate to be here celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Technology Law and Policy Clinic at NYU. Um, Jason and his clinic enrich the intellectual life at this law school and much further um, by originating and helping advance so many scholarly projects. I'll mention a few that um, really stick out, but there's even so much more. Um, his work on ownership in the digital economy, um, regulation of facial recognition, whether AI systems can be state actors, um, worker surveillance. Um, and the clinic's work has enabled a robust education here at NYU um, in intellectual property, information law, and technology law by giving students a hand in working on and advancing cutting edge issues in the field and enabling them to apply the intellectual property and tech law offerings that they have in the non-clinical space and theories of that to real world situation. And I I've thought that the clinic is so important, it really rounds out our IP information law and tech law offerings in a way that really benefits um, our students. The clinic also interfaces with the Engelberg Center um, to yield many of our important white papers and reports and events, such as a recent white paper co-authored by Jason on the anti-ownership book economy, ebook economy. And I have to just say, my intellectual and personal life is enriched um, by getting to collaborate with and spend time with Jason, and he's just an invaluable um, member of um, this community. Um, so in all my roles, I really feel so grateful um, that Jason and his clinic have been at NYU. Um, you know, there's a misperception oftentimes of technology law and policy and intellectual property as being a private law subject, right? It's all about how you know these private entities um, organize themselves. And it's one thing that prospective students often ask a lot about as they're coming in. Um, you know, they're interested in um, pol public policy and other things, and they want to know: is intellectual property, is information law, is tech law just about private law? And I always tell them no, and exhibit A is the work that this clinic does because it underscores how enmeshed the public interest is in these fields. Um, and I wanna give you a sense, you're gonna hear, I expect you'll hear more about a lot of this today, but it just like boggled my mind to put all this together <laughs> um, when I was thinking about this. So here's a sense of some of the um, past and probably ongoing matters um, that um, the clinic has done. And so I'm guessing you know many of you have worked on. Okay, so counseling open source software, open science and DIY makers to develop um, appropriate licensing mechanisms. 
um, counseling the New York Public Library on the legal rules and risks associated with open source software production, and more recently on various issues, copyright, privacy, and security issues related to um, its ebook lending app. Um, filing public records requests and lawsuits to inform the public about government surveillance programs, such as um, warrantless tracking of the location of people's cell phones and many more things. Um, arguing on behalf of Redigi um, in a really important case. <laughs> important case on copyrights um, for sale doctrine in the digital world. Um, representing the artist and designer um, Abigail Glam Lathbury for her project, um, the Genuine Unauthorized Clothing Clone Institute, in which she would take selfies wearing luxury garments and digitally printing um, her selfies onto liberated garments of her own making. Um, that was a really fun one. <laughs> um, representing um, Mozilla, Wikimedia, and other organizations in support of certiorari and Google versus Oracle, raising concerns about overprotecting of APIs via copyright law. That one went better. <laughs> um, um, working with the Prep for All collaboration, an all-volunteer group of access to medicine activists um, in New York City to challenge patent monopolies on life-saving HIV, um, AIDS, and COVID-19 um, drugs to ensure wide equitable access to medical technologies, um, work on behalf of artists in copyright case involving appropriation art, arguing in favor of a broad understanding of fair use, constitutional litigation over aerial surveillance um, system, in um, Baltimore, those are just, that's just a sample, and I, it just boggles my mind to think about this range of really important, um, you know, set of issues related to technology law and policy that Jason and the clinic have really um, pushed forward over the past many years, and it's yielded incredible results. Um, also, as evidenced by the amazing group of people. <laughs> Um, many of whom are gathered here today. The um, fellows that Jason's worked with and co-teachers that are populating the academy and public interest organizations, um, students that are now populating law firms, tech and other companies, public interest groups and government. Um, so thank you for being here today. Thank you to Jason. Um, for coming to the East Coast <laughs> um, and launching this impactful and amazing clinic and allowing us all to benefit from it. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Chief. Um, so why don't I invite the first panel to come up, and then I'll say a few things to kick us off. Um, so I think you know who you are. <laughs> right. And you guys can. <laughs> I, I, I learned this trick, which is if you get the first panelist up here, they can't leave. Right. <laughs> That's what you think. Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe you can. Um, right. um, so uh, yeah, thank, welcome. And thank you again, everyone, for being here. Um, and I also want to just make sure that we take a moment to thank Michael, who's walking right in front of us right here. 
Um, and uh, Katrina, who I think, is Katrina still outside? Yes. Okay, so we'll also thank Katrina when she's inside, maybe at lunch or something like that. Uh, and to Susan and Jake uh, and all the others who helped make this event happen, um, any of you who know me know that I like ideas and execution is something that I need help with. Uh, no, but seriously, it's been fantastic to work with everyone to make it all come together. Uh, including, you know, the happy hour tonight after, or this afternoon afterwards and everything. So um, really thank you to all of you for, um, for the work you did to make this all come together. Um, so nearly 25 years ago, which is kind of crazy to think about, I was a 2L at Berkeley Law. And um, I was there, I was interested in uh, intellectual property and privacy and a couple of these other things and thinking about public interest things. And, um, you know, it was kind of a more innocent time, <laughs> one might think, in technology law. At least we didn't understand necessarily uh, all of the kind of, uh, you know, heavy things and kind of serious things that could happen at the moment. But what we did know was, as we looked around the sort of student group I was with, that um, a lot of our friends who cared about justice and public interest had a place to go to do that work while in law school. They had a clinic, some of them had other things, but like clinics were a big part of where that energy could go and we didn't have one. And um, so we got together with some faculty, particularly Pam Samuelson at Berkeley, but others as well. And uh, we petitioned for a clinic there to create a, a, well, a sort of IP tech clinic. We didn't even know what the name was gonna be. Um, and we got a lot of students to sign on. We approached the faculty, we argued for it, and we had to make a case why it was important. Why it was important not just for the world and all that, but also just for our learning, something that we couldn't just get from a summer in a law firm kind of idea, right? And we were successful um, in large part because there were a lot of loud student voices um, and that students asking for what they need was a really big part of it, which, you know, for those who, you know, who are here know in clinics, you know, students deciding what they want to do is a big part, like just having agency of some kind and, and making in your own mind what, up what a strategy looks like, how are you going to implement it, what are you going to do. So it was kind of fun that that was also kind of sort of what got the momentum going there. Um, and um, it was really, you know, an interesting moment because as we were articulating you know, these kinds of ideas around what well, we want to work on, you know, open access and public domain and privacy and cybersecurity. It was also kind of overwhelming, right, to think about all the different areas that you could work on, but also exciting. Um, and it also started to link up with, like, this idea of, like, well, what kind of lawyers do we need in the world? What kind of advocates need to be working on these issues after graduation, right? Um, and also, like, where did we want to create a space uh, at the law school for people like us who would come later, right? Like, when you land in law school, I mean, this is still something that sits with me every single time I talk to prospective students or one else is like the search for a, a um, well, I don't want to search for a space that feels like it could be solid ground on some level, right? And a place, maybe it's a home, maybe it's a community, maybe it's something else, but something where they can sort of feel like, okay, I can sit here and it can be solid and I can hang out here in law school and, and then I can do everything else I want to do. And trying to create that with a clinic was a big goal as, of us as students there at Berkeley. And then about 10 years ago, 
um, and I'd come back from EFF to teach the clinic at Berkeley, I got contacted by um, uh, NYU, and they were interested in starting a clinic here. And I didn't really understand what was going on or why or whatever, but I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'll come and I'll talk to folks here. And I came, and the faculty were lovely, and the cafes were cozy, and it was all good. But then um, I heard, actually, while I was here, that this had all come about because of a student petition that a, a bunch of students had said, why is there no clinic here? We have this great clinical program. We have this great IP program. But we're not doing this kind of work, and other law schools are doing it. And um, I was so excited because, you know, of course, this took me back to the, the sort of Berkeley vibe. And I was like, wow, that is a big deal. And I was like, can I meet with these students? And then it turned out that the only time during my visit um, that we could all meet was like on a Saturday morning. And I was like, OK, I'm sure, like, no one's really going to show up on Saturday morning, but if people want to hang out on Saturday morning and talk to me, they can. And like dozens came. And it's one of those things where like in law school, if dozens of students show up on a Saturday morning for anything other than exam review, you know that like this is something that actually matters to them, right? So anyway, long story short, like it was a great experience, but it was also a necessary experience, right? Because that is what it takes. It takes the kind of student energy to make a clinic real. Um, it is something that is essential, and it was so essential here. And it made me, it sort of just made it obvious that this had to happen. Um, so, you know, today, looking back on the last 10 years, it's just been a huge privilege to be part of this endeavor. Um, we've had hundreds of students, uh, dozens of clients, hundreds of matters. Um, you know, Jeannie touched on a number of them and the kind of range of things. And we're going to talk about a bunch of those today. Um, but in particular, today for me is about the people, about the community, and just how great it's been to work with so many of you um, over the years. It's really, it's been the best part. And, um, you know, in particular, not just the folks here on the panel who I'll introduce in a second, but, you know, the, I, the, cl the clients, the students, the co-teachers, like it's, it's, a, it's all been a learning experience for me, too. Like I learned something from everyone I work with, and that has been so valuable to me. And I think it's been, hopefully, something that the clinic has offered everyone. Um, all right, so a couple logistical things, and then I think we'll move in. Um, we saved you a spot. Okay, yeah, I was like, I, like <laughs> I don't want to stand up here, so I'm like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go down the end once we, once we get into it. Um, so people will be coming in and out all day. Um, what's also great about students who have jobs is that they have jobs. Uh, but so lots of folks will be coming in and out from uh, who you know uh, are going to make it, but might have to step out. But I want to also just encourage everyone that the one of the big goals we have breaks to socialize is to connect. Right, connect with people you know, maybe find someone you don't know. If you want to like bail on a panel and go get coffee or take a walk or whatever, please do. Like, I absolutely encourage you to take the advantage of this time as time to find in, uh, people and talk to them and get to know them or reconnect with them or whatever you need. Uh, the panels are here just to kind of you know, keep us going and to give us new uh, information on what people are working on and how they're thinking and reflections and stuff. But don't let that hold you back. Um, I don't think. Are there any other logistical things? I don't think so. If you have questions, whatever, we're around. But all the, the other thing is, um, we did, Katrina did send around a link to a kudos board. 
Uh, this is something actually I just learned last week exists in the world. So, uh, but it is a kind of place where if for some reason you want to leave a comment, you want to like have a memory that you want to share or anything, or even a, you know, a challenge to the clinic to do something, whatever it is, uh, feel free to just chuck it up there. Um, if you need the link, Katrina can send it to you. But, um, you know, it's just another method of kind of being able to contribute if you feel like it, because I know not everybody uh, gets up and speaks in a podium and these kind of things, right? Um, okay, so I'm now going to transition to the seat at the end. <laughs> wow. You were you were waiting for that moment. I that, was, that was easy. So, well, well done. Well done. Um, all right. Hi. Um, so the first panel uh, is about clinical teaching, and this is also like just one of those things that I'm super proud and privileged to just be connected to all of you um, around, which is when. Um, you know, when you, when you create a clinic like we did at Berkeley, uh, and this I got a lot of mentoring on, it's like how do you think about this as a field, right? As a field of work that people can build together, um, you know, whether you want to think of it as a movement or a kind of intellectual endeavor or a kind of community endeavor or any of those things. And one of the first pieces of advice I got was, well, how do you get help. <laughs> How do you work with people uh, and learn from them and so that you have colleagues, right? Because it's very lonely to do all kinds of work um, and it does, so it's not very productive. Um, and so these ideas of teaching and figuring out how to teach together have been always really important to me. So I have four wonderful people here who are going to, uh, we're going to have a conversation about it. Um, so the first thing is uh, I'm I always hate introducing people because I feel like they know their stories better than I do. So I'm going to ask each of you just to say a little bit about who you are, what you do now, um, and what your connection to the TLP clinic is or was. So why don't I start with you, Amanda? Sure. Uh, my name is Amanda Lewandowski. I am the founding director of Georgetown Law's Intellectual Property and Information Policy Clinic, or the IPIF clinic. And I founded that clinic because I was a student in this clinic. And I had a life crisis as a second semester 3L. And I was working at the ACLU, and I was realizing that I didn't just have to work for tech companies or other corporations. I could be working in the public interest. That hadn't occurred to me before then, which is a real problem. Uh, and I went to Jason, and I was like, cool, 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 cool. What do I do? And he was like, don't worry. You're going to go into your job in big law. You're going to learn so much. You're going to get a bunch of skills. And then when you're ready, you can go, there's clinical fellowships all across the country, because what I said to him, I think, was, I want your job. Um, and he was like, well, I have that job, so unfortunately, that won't work. Um, but we can find you your own job. And one way you can do that is through a clinical teaching fellowship, which had never been on my radar before. And so then I came back as a clinical teaching fellow, and I spent another six years at NYU, um, which was remembered by the wonderful guard who let me in without an ID. Um, and then I founded the clinic at Georgetown, and there was, there was a student interest at Georgetown as well, um, and they just hadn't found the right person um, to make that happen for the students, and I got to be that person. Hi, everyone. I'm Peter Stephenson. I am the uh, legal fellow at the First Amendment Clinic at uh, SMU Dedman School of Law in Dallas. Um, I, uh, I started there last June, so I'm relatively new to the, the clinical teaching world. 
Um, and also extremely humbled to be on this panel with some amazing people, three of whom were my professors. Um, so uh, this is an amazing full circle moment for me. I, I think I have somewhat of a similar story to Amanda in, in that um, uh, I also realized uh, in law school and particularly through the clinic that um, I did not necessarily have to craft my career around working for uh, a law firm or for a big company or corporation um, out of law school. Uh, before law school, I worked in the, the digital advertising industry. What drew me in sort of the tech space was um, interest in uh, commercial surveillance issues and, and broader surveillance issues in general. That was sort of the, the, the thread on the, the sweater that I started pulling. Um, and so I knew I was always interested in, in, in public interest law, um, but I think my experience in the, in the clinic, learning from y'all, getting to do some um, really, I think, formative work for me and working with, I think, some of the, the best students in the law school um, really made me realize that I wanted to commit to public interest work after law school. Um, so I didn't go directly into the tech space. Um, after graduating, I started a fellowship at a legal services organization in Texas called the Texas Civil Rights Project. I did a lot of criminal legal system work, and sometimes there were sort of tech-adjacent issues. Um, and then when I was ready for a transition and the, the right opportunity came up, which um, luck plays into um, getting these roles a lot of times, um, but the timing was right, and uh, a position opened up at SMU, and, and here I am now. So um, I'm going to try and refrain from um, saying uh, what they said a lot on this panel, um, <laughs> because a lot of what I know I learned from, um, from the folks up here, um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. I'll try and add some uh, bits and pieces of insight where I can, but really I'm just grateful to be here and grateful to be back. Thanks. Megan. Um, hi everybody, I am Megan Graham. Um, my, I have like the longest title, I apologize. Um, I'm a clinical supervising attorney at the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy, Ber ah, Public Policy Clinic at Berkeley Law. See, I, I fumble over it. Um, <laughs> so. What's the acronym? No. <laughs> uh, we actually did away with the acronym now. We just call ourselves the Samuelson Clinic. Okay. Um, we're the only one that's only Samuelson. The others mm. have other names in them as well. Um, so I, my experience with the clinic is I actually only did one semester in the clinic, but I was in the advanced clinic as a second semester 3L um, for reasons that involved a lot of begging Jason to let me into the clinic. <laughs> um, and as far as, you know, how did the clinic kind of shape my career? What is my interaction with the clinic? Um, unlike folks to my left, I knew that law firm life was not for me. Um, when I started law school, I think anybody who's met me for more than five minutes knows that that was not going to be my calling. Um, but I definitely, as a second semester 3L, walked into Jason's office and I was like, so I want to do something that's not a job. Like, I, these are the things I'm interested in. And there isn't. No one does this. Like, so I didn't want Jason's job necessarily, but I was like, I don't know how to make this a career. I have this like weird niche interest, and no one is hiring for that. And Jason was like, well, we'll figure it out. Don't worry. Like, well, you know, you'll do your first job or maybe like your first couple jobs. And then, you know, clinical teaching is, a, I actually think at the time, you were, clinical teaching is a space where you can kind of, make up your job. You can decide what your docket looks like and really um, help people who need help in ways that are different than whoever is doing, whoever has the same title kind of right next to you. Um, so after a couple of years, I went to Berkeley because I think as Peter said, that was where there was an opening at the time. Um, and I was lucky enough to have mentors, both Jason and 
folks who used to work with Jason at Berkeley um, or with Jason here who were like, well, we can explore, right? What it means to be a tech and public interest lawyer can be infinite things. Um, and so my work, especially more recently, has really focused on tech and the criminal legal system in practice, right? Like, what do public defenders see in their cases? What do they need help figuring out how to litigate? Um, and that's, you know, a space where, you know, Brett, you and your colleagues have been working around there, but the like really strong deep partnerships with public defender offices who are seeing the trial cases with the evidence and the need to build a record or litigate an issue is just a challenge. And for whatever reason, stars aligned and I was able to kind of slide in and, and grow that space out. Um, so it all started, it sounds like everybody went to Jason. It was like, <laughs> we, we don't know what this job looks like. What job can we do? Um, and that's kind of why I'm- Clinic director, crisis coordinator. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing, Venn diagram, circle. Yes, circle. <laughs> Uh, Brett. Cool. Uh, I'm Brett. I also had a competition moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We have to stop that. That's the real title of the thing. I was a young fellow at, uh, at the ACLU in the National Security Project for a couple of years that were um, some of the most active in the project's history. Uh, there were Guantanamo cases. There was a Bivens lawsuit, if you remember that. Um, on behalf of um, Anwar Alaki's family. Um, and in the, right in the middle of my fellowship, the Snowden disclosures happened. And there was a, a lot of intense litigation around that. And I couldn't have imagined leaving, you know? That's one of the painful things of getting a good fellowship is realizing you can't stay. And I really did feel sort of like I was being cast into the wilderness um, and had just you know, one of those lucky breaks of your lifetime when um, I got put in touch with Jason, who was looking for a teaching fellow in this, in this relatively new clinic. Um, and we just hit it off in a really short conversation, and I think a couple weeks later, it was done, and I was going to go be a teacher, which is something I had never even thought about. Um, and so, um, one thing I really, really have been always grateful for is we had just a really honest conversation where... Um, you know, Jason said to me, you don't have to take this job and go become a teacher if you don't want to. Like, you can do anything you want with it. Um, but I could see you being great at it, and, um, and you'll go and, and use that, you know, um, going forward. And so that gave me a lot of confidence to do it. Um, and it also became part of how I end up mentoring students, too, is just kind of realizing that there's no set path for anything. And um, you can kind of, just as Megan, as all these people sort of, gave their own way, you got to just find your little niche and, and go for it and, and have the confidence it'll work out. So um, so I've been really fortunate. I was only a fellow for one year. I got an opportunity to go back to the ACLU and Jason encouraged, even though I was sort of bailing on a multi-year commitment, he's Thanks for that, by the way. That, really <laughs> <is>. <laughs> um, that was the accident that, yeah. you know. Yeah, he encouraged me to go back and then obviously gave me the chance to be an adjunct and that ran for you know seven, eight, nine years almost. Um, and I have been so lucky to know almost all of you in the audience because of that experience. And so um, I'm still at the ACLU. I'm, uh, I'm working remotely out of California. And um, I, I just, it was like last fall, I think was my last semester teaching here. Um, and this semester I've been teaching a seminar at UCLA which is a totally different thing, and I can't even imagine 10 years ago like, 
thinking that that would be a possibility for me. So um, really grateful to be here. Um, my experience in the clinic has been incredible. Um, and getting to meet so many amazing students and watching you all. I mean, one of the weirdest things being a practitioner and having this also as part of my life is being on Zoom calls, and then all of a sudden, a student I had four years ago was like <laughs> on the other end of it, and I'm like, whoa, this is bizarre. And it's happened now like seven, eight, nine times. Um, so it's it also makes me feel really proud to be connected to this community, for sure. Um, one thing I just want to mention is um, originally Chris Morton was also going to be on this panel. Uh, he now, he was a teaching fellow who now runs a clinic at Columbia. He did have a uh, family emergency health situation, but so he sends his love and greetings to everybody um, as well. And I just want to acknowledge that Chris is also part of this uh, this community and, and is going to be up here. Um, so let's dig a little deeper, just for for fun, um, but also because I think this is part of the connection that's always fascinating uh, to me a bit. Which is, so you know, one of the ways I think about clinical teaching is creating student learning opportunities and then trying to get out of the way. Right, so that the students can go in, figure it out, and you're there to provide you know, the safety net or whatever you need to do, but also to help them see opportunities, reflect on them, figure, figure things out from, from a kind of um, you know, support role uh, in, in some ways. So I wondered if each of you wanted to maybe talk about one thing that you're either currently doing in terms of your teaching or uh, work, or you know, with, you know, if you're mentoring or working in that way, like, like, give us a little more detail about a particular project that you've worked on, um, and then how you see those student learning opportunities kind of in that work, and then if there's any connection to kind of you know things that you saw when you were in the clinic here, you don't have to, but like, just like, what does student what does student learning opportunities look like to you in the work that you do? Maybe that's a good way to put it. And why don't we go in reverse order? So we'll give Amanda a break and come back. <laughs> um, well, you know, one of the great parts of my job at ACLU is getting, I, I have a pretty broad docket and I work with multiple projects, which means that I get to work with um, a lot of our legal fellows at the ACLU. Um, and being in that kind of supervising role for a young attorney like a legal fellow is I mean, the, the skills and the relationships are like really, really similar to how you manage a project in, in the clinic. Um, and so I'm constantly falling back on things that we did um, and that I learned um, from Jason and others in the clinic about how to approach that kind of work, how to give, give people structure um, on how to accomplish something and learn through it themselves, but also make sure that they're not just completely spinning their wheels constantly. Um, and so... Uh, just approaching and, and, you know, the way that we do feedback and sort of breaking down process and stuff, which can feel like, okay, we're in a law clinic, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about talking about everything, you know, <laughs> but that just completely, that, that uh, totally ports over to practice, you know, and I think the more that you can think of your relationships at work, like in the frame that we all learned in clinic, um, you're going to give better feedback. You're going to, you know, have better trust. You're going to have people that gain more confidence about how to go about their work by themselves. And so, um, and and also the values I think that we talk about in the clinic all the time um, are really really important. You know, including, you know, one of the things I try to teach all the young lawyers that I work with at the ACLU is that 
being a good colleague is maybe the most important thing you can bring to work. Um, and we talk about that so much in clinic, that like even if you're not the best at this legal research or you're the best writer or whatever, you can contribute to that environment by just being a good colleague, by being a listener, helping people think through things, editing, um, driving forward things that are you know in your in your sort of area. And so, I make that explicit with with young lawyers all the time. Um, communication, another value, like Jason always is like. You know, and I brought that totally part of my, you know, my practice as well as like my new teaching thing. Is just look, things happen. You, maybe you can't miss, make a deadline. Just tell me as soon as you can't, and we'll work it out. And that's that approach. I think is just so healthy and so important to make explicit. So um, I feel like I'm constantly falling back on on stuff that we we did in the clinic to actually move forward projects at the ACLU. Yeah. Um, so I think I'll talk about, so when I was a student, um, the, I worked on like I think three projects that semester. There were a whole bunch of projects involved. Um, and one of the things I remember being like frustrated about, but also knowing, it was like taking your medicine where you're like, I know, I know there's a reason for this because there's no way that these people are gonna like let us be this annoyed the whole semester, the first part of the semester, was um, Jason and Lee Rowland, who was my supervisor, and Brett were kind of like, well, here are the projects figure it out. Like, what does the project look like? What does it look like in practice? And that's a really challenging thing to do, right, when you're a student who just wants to be told, like, write a memo about X legal issue, right? Um, and we were given this kind of free reign to explore, to have conversations with our clients about what, like, this is what we think would help, would this help, right? Um, and have those conversations before we even started doing the work, right? Um, and so now, a lot of my practice with students is exactly that, and it's me getting my comeuppance because I'm listening to students be like, this is really annoying, kind of constantly, right? This is really hard, this is really annoying. Um, but one recent example, we worked with a federal public defender office in New England who was really struggling with ensuring that their clients had actual meaningful access to their discovery materials when their clients were um, detained pretrial, right? So their clients are in jail. The judges are being told, hey, there are computers. They can access this stuff if they want to. They can review materials. It's not a big deal. And the students were like, OK, so we know what the problem is, which is all of the defense attorneys are telling us that that's not true, right? But like, we don't know what to do. We don't know. Does that mean we have to like litigate a whole bunch of issues that we'll figure out what the motions are called later? Does it mean we have to, you know, participate in some other way? Do we need to like push judges in kind of an education training set setting? Do we need to make sure that we understand what the barriers are? Is it that there aren't enough computers? Is it that clients who are incarcerated don't know what they have to do to read their discovery materials, right? There were kind of like any number of potential triggers. And the students were just like, it's so big. <laughs> like We don't know, we don't know what to do and you won't tell us. And I was like, well, Jason told me <laughs> that that's part of what it means to be a lawyer, right? Is figuring out what is the problem and then what is the fix? What is the set of tools that you want to deploy that's going to best help your client, right? And that may mean that you don't, it may not be what you thought it was originally. Um, and that's a project that involved, actually, at the end of the day, similar to my clinic experience, like four different solutions, right? The students had to work on many different types of things. Some of it was um, 
just ed like educational material to explain how does a criminal case unfold? Why is discovery important? And how do you access your discovery if you are incarcerated? We also interviewed a whole bunch of people and then went to the judges and we were like, so we think that you all maybe want to go to the jail and actually see what the setup is. Because you're being told something that we do understand is literally true, um, but that is not translating to an actual reality where people have access to justice. They do not have access to these materials that let them participate in their own defense. And so you, like, you have to physically go look at this. So you better understand it. And the judges did. And then the judges were like, what is this? <laughs> like they were so, they were flabbergasted and they felt lied to. Um, and they kind of, the judges started to push, right? In a way that the federal public defender got to be like, great, <laughs> we will help you push. We will help make sure you understand what um, these issues are. And so I think one of the things I learned in the clinic, again, as frustrating as it was for me, is sometimes at the start, you don't know what the best path is. And that's part of being a lawyer, part of being in the clinic. Um, and I, I just spend a lot of time with my current students being like, it'll be okay. We will figure it out. Are we making forward progress? Are you listening to your clients? Are you thinking through creative solutions, right? Like, like I said, sometimes it's litigation and sometimes it's not, right? And sometimes it's something that you would not have imagined when you applied to law school would be real legal work. And like, that's okay. Because the end of the day, how do we best help the people who need our help, right? Yeah, Peter. So I'll, um, I'll draw on Brett's point about values um, and say that one of the things that I think back to my clinic experience all the time was how much my clinic experience helped me figure out the kind of lawyer that I wanted to be. Um, and, and I don't think that that's something that law school is very good at. It's, it's good at, at least on the doctrinal side, teaching you um, all sorts of creative ways about thinking about the law and talking about the law, but I don't think it really necessarily gives you role models, unless your role model or, or your, your desire is to, to be a professor. Um, and, and that was something that I think I came into my clinic experience looking for and wanting, um, and very much finding people who were the model of lawyer that I wanted to be and sort of showed me what was possible in terms of bringing care and empathy and compassion, not just into the actual legal work, but into the way that you treat each other and pull together a team of, of students and, and professors and supervisors to work on something that um, everyone agrees is, is important and often urgent um, and incredibly valuable for their clients. And so when I, when I approach sort of each new semester and each new group of students, and I'm in my, my third semester now, I find myself sort of always thinking back to what my experience in clinic was, especially at the very beginning, and learning from the values that our professors held outwardly um, and didn't necessarily tell us we needed to adopt, but, but it was very much a um, kind of, we learned by them showing. Um, and, and so the way that I try to draw on that and level set within the clinic is, you know, I feel like oftentimes, and, and maybe some of y'all can empathize with this, but oftentimes our, our students come in with a certain set of assumptions and expectations about what being a student in a law school class is. And clinic is not that, and, and I, I don't think should be that. It should very much be a counterpoint to um, many of the, um, the, the ingrained habits that you kind of learn early on in law school. 
Um, and so that's an opportunity for us to kind of unwind and, uh, and reset our students and have them think about what does it mean to be a good lawyer? What does it mean to be a responsible lawyer? Um, and, and so I'll echo a lot of what you were saying about um, being a good teammate and, and honesty and being upfront. And, and I'll add even being willing to come to your team and, and admit mistakes early on um, because that level of transparency and honesty pulls your team closer and, and helps show that you can be a reliable person and a reliable lawyer in representing your clients. Um, and so early on, whenever I have my sort of initial one-on-one -on -one meetings with students, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to start laying the, the groundwork for that um, in, in any of the projects that I work on with them and, and to, to ground that in a particular example. Um, you know, we're, we're a very litigation-heavy clinic. Uh, we filed a lawsuit earlier this year, um, a 1983 suit involving a, a client of ours who was arrested for filing a public records request. Um, and so we just completed the motion to dismiss briefing, and our students were integral to that, but we had the benefit of starting early in the semester with pre-briefing a lot of the issues that we were going to work on. And that gave us a chance to go through three, four, five, six iterations, which is not always what it'll be like practically in, in actual legal practice, but it gives them sort of a good um, sort of place to experiment and build comfort and learn what is the feedback and, and what are my expectations and, and what might be the expectations and, and habits of the people that they, they work with and their partners. Um, and, and all of that um, comes with, I think, a safety net, which is so important for, for clinical teaching as well, is to um, tell people early on that this is a place where you can learn but also make mistakes um, and that we are here to support you and help develop those skills so that when you're ready to graduate and go on to whatever you're going to do, that you know, the experience that you had here was, was positive and formative and, and didn't instill bad habits or, um, or add to the, um, the other assumptions and, um, and, and things that are built into the, the doctrinal teaching system um, and where clinics really have an opportunity to, to pull students away from that type of thinking. I really agree with the values. And one of the things that was so important when I was setting up my clinic is I wanted to make those values really explicit for students. I wanted them to discover their own values, right? That was still really important. But I wanted to make a commitment to them about the kind of working environment I was going to create for them. And based on my experiences in the clinic as both a student and a fellow, I decided to say that we would foster a working environment rooted in hard work, trust, humility, respect, and joy. And I feel like that really captures so much of my experience. But that's actually not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how this year, it took me four years from fellow to professor to join the Jason Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> I recently hired a new fellow of my own. She's not my first fellow. Um, she's my third fellow, and she's amazing. Her name is Shweta Kumar, and she was referred to me by Chris Morton, who was Jason's fellow after me. And I knew that if it was coming with that level, like, level of lineage, she was going to be an effing rock star. And I had been right. And to give you a concrete example, here at Georgetown, or not here at Georgetown, but at Georgetown, uh, the fellows are also students. They're LLM students in advocacy. And so she's in this dual role as learner and learning. And we decided to cross-staff on a project together. And this project was really exciting to me because it was putting one of my pieces of scholarship at the intersection of intellectual and privacy, which I would never have done but for the clinic, into practice. 
I wrote a piece about using uh, the Federal Trademark Register for surveillance transparency because a bunch of companies don't realize that when they file federal trademarks, they have to describe the goods and services that they're filing for publicly. And they disclosed some pretty wild shit, including like the private cell phone numbers of a Predpol worker or the exact interface of a Palantir computer or the actual license plate numbers captured by an automated license plate reader. Not a joke. Um, but we're using that to research whether ebook companies that are intermediaries for public libraries, some of them you may have heard of, um, are able to spy on library patrons, which is a real concern for our client. And she has a patent background. I have this trademark background. And so she was going to supervise the students on developing patent searches to write, do the same methodology, but in a different system. I was advising them on the trademark stuff. And one week before the middle of the semester, I pulled her aside and I was like, do you want to just run this project? And she was like, well, that seems quite intimidating. I just started. And she was very lovely about it. But I kind of said, you know, you're, you're ready. Right? The same way that we throw the students into it and we're here to give a safety net and guardrails, I was like, you can take the bumpers off. You're not going to roll off the bed. You are going to do an amazing job. And now they just sent me their draft for an op-ed that they're writing with their client. And her name's going to be on it, which feels really good. <laughs> amazing. That's a fantastic paper, by the way. If anyone's interested in, in what Amanda uncovered that no one had seen, it's really brilliant. Um, in fact, there are two papers, right? Like mm -hmm. you. Did a follow-on as well. I did. So. The first was so nice, I did it twice. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I'm, I want to dig in a little deeper and uh, to, the, to the substance. You've, you've touched on it a bit um, and, uh, in some of your comments. But I, I think this is also what's fun about it, right? And this is also where I learn a ton of stuff, right? But also just to kind of acknowledge again, like I've, it's not that we're in a unique moment, but we are in a particular moment right now with where like the headlines just seem like more and more every day. That the question of how technology is changing society, for better or for worse, is just like everywhere. And um, I wondered if, yeah, if you, if you each wanted to talk about a particular project, I mean, maybe even follow up on the projects that you know the two of you mentioned or pixeling else, where you think it, it's like this is one of those issues that is on your mind. It's like one of your issues where you're like we got to get this one really right, or it's going to, like, like something, something that you're really driven around, and kind of what your teaching or the clinical piece of that uh, might look like. So I'll give an example, like, um, you know, that I think, um, you know, right now, uh, this question of, um, uh, digital lending for libraries, right? Which is kind of related to the ebook stuff, right? Like, will libraries survive in the digital age is kind of this important question that um, we're trying to figure out. There's a lawsuit against the Internet Archive. There's opportunities for amicus briefs. Um, and I think the students, you know, are doing really great work on, like, copyright law, right? But it's like thinking about, like, will libraries sort of survive this this moment we're in? And what will they look like on the other side, right? Is something that I... I still don't know the answer to. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like um, in that respect. But that is something that I, I am finding myself thinking a lot about. How do I help the students' work have the biggest impact on that question, um, both doctrinally in terms of getting the law right, but also in terms of like helping the court and the Second Circuit think about all the implications of being able to share knowledge right, and stuff like that. So. Um, 
Anyway, yeah, so I would say, like, if you want to dig in a little more on, like, the substance of kind of some of the stuff that you've been working on and thinking about, like, for you, what, what, what do you, what do you, you know, slash, keeps you up at night, slash, when you wake up in the morning, like, what are the kind of issues that you really want to make sure that you're focusing on and, you know, and again, Brett, it could be in your work, too, but also in the seminar that you're teaching or whatever makes sense. So, anyone can jump in if you want. And, um, and Peter, I'm going to ask you specifically, like, if you want to talk a little bit about what it's like to be in Texas right now, because I also, I mean, that's the context that I'm thinking about, right, is like, you know, the politics of today really matter. Um, they always have, I guess, but like in particular right now around things like speech, access for journalists to be able to report story. I mean, the idea of arresting because you did a public records request. I mean, I'd love to know more about that, right? So, actually, why, yeah, why don't you why don't you start? Why don't you tell us a little more? No, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna call you. Say, tell us a little more about that matter because I mean, it's like and and why that is something that you know you took on and and what's at stake and what do you think the students are engaging around and thinking about it. Yeah, um, so it's it's a really, really fascinating and, and somewhat complicated case that um, was a bit belied by my sort of basic description of it. But so our, our client was arrested for filing a public records request using a pseudonym that was close to, but not the same as uh, the name of a local council member. Um, and all he did was put that name in the, the name field of an electronic form uh, that he used, uh, that was a required field that he used to then submit his request for police records. Um, he did this for two requests within minutes of each other. A third request that he filed a couple of weeks later um, was uh, uh, incomplete. He didn't actually fill in what he, what he wanted, so there was really no obligation to respond to it or anything like that. Uh, nine months later, he was arrested for impersonating a public official uh, because the uh, the police and local officials mistakenly believed that uh, he was impersonating this town council member, even though it was pretty patently obvious that, that he wasn't. And uh, all that he did was use this name in the request form. Uh, he didn't go further. He didn't hold himself out as this person. He never signed his emails with that name. Uh, he even, in an email to town council a couple weeks later, addressed in the CC field the actual person who they accused him of impersonating. <coughs> uh, and that, for whatever reason, triggered a nine-month-long investigation into not whether or not there was an additional or, or other facts that would have proven up the basis for arresting him, but, but solely his identity. They just wanted to know who he was and, uh, and then they wanted to arrest him for it. Um, so we filed this in the summer. Um, we, as I said, just completed the, the motion to dismiss briefing or are really about to complete it because the, the defendants really have to file a reply. Um, but um, I, we, we took it on um, in large part because I think we are seeing a um, increasing amount of um, willingness on the part of law enforcement and state officials to punish people for um, accountability measures, for uh, protests, um, for uh, digging up um, unfavorable information and putting it into a public light. And I don't think that that's necessarily unique to Texas, but, um, but uh, we happen to be the ones who our client came to. And, um, and so it's, you know, as, as a teaching vehicle, um, a, I think a really important way to help teach not just 
the substance of First Amendment law and how it, um, especially in the criminal space, intersects with Fourth Amendment law. Um, but also some of the other doctrinal hurdles and barriers that are erected to plaintiffs um, and how hard uh, it has become for those plaintiffs to make it past key phases of um, each of the cases. And so when we're talking about what it's like to litigate these cases, I think we also have to bring to the table um, a, a really significant degree of honesty with our students about um, how hard these cases can still be to litigate despite how righteous they, they may come across as. Um, but it's also you know, a great way to introduce things like qualified immunity to our students um, who may not necessarily have come across that in earlier classes um, or, or some of the other um, barriers. Um, I mean, not, not an issue in this case, but um, sovereign immunity. And you asked me, or you asked us, what, what keeps us up at night. Um, the contraction of uh, sovereign immunity in the Fifth Circuit and um, the increasingly narrow way that the Fifth Circuit has interpreted Ex parte Young and allowed uh, or not allowed suits to proceed for injunctive relief against state actors has meant that um, in core First Amendment suits dealing with some of the most important issues that are bubbling up in Texas, um, the, the recent uh, drag show bans uh, come to mind as an example. Um, it's incredibly hard to get relief against state officials and obtain an injunction, an injunction that applies at a statewide level, which means that the more the Fifth Circuit keeps interpreting things that way, the more patchwork the relief is going to be, and it's going to ensure that um, you know, the people who are harmed may be able to get some local relief, but um, for entire communities of people um, who live in Texas and for which Texas is becoming increasingly hostile place to, to live and to exist, the courts are becoming less and less a, a viable avenue to, to help those people out. And I think that's another thing that we also have to bring to the table in terms of honesty um, is, um, I, I don't know what the right way to put it, is instilling a healthy level of skepticism about the, the court system. Um, and um, very much the systems that they're going to graduate from our school and go into um, supporting. And, um, and so I, I also feel a certain, certain level of internal conflict about that every day as well. And I'm still figuring out how to teach that and what is the right balance in terms of instilling that skepticism, but also instilling the values and tools that they need to, to be successful in their careers when they start doing that. I can go in a slightly different direction, but I think it overlaps, right? Like, in the sense of like, what are the things that keep you up at night and they're either like big structural things. Um, so one of the projects I've been working on since literally the first day I started at the clinic at Berkeley uh, six and a half years ago is we've had this long running project that I think has had nine different student teams on it over the years, trying to secure attorney-client privilege in emails um, with clients who are held in Federal Bureau of Prisons facilities. Um, one of the reasons we are focused on BOP is just because it was like one entity that we could latch onto, but this is a problem that is true in, to my knowledge, every county jail that offers email access to anyone who is held in, um, or state um, departments of corrections facility. The terms of service uh, of all of those email systems require people to acknowledge that their emails will be monitored and that a 
any email sent between an incarcerated person and a legal team will not be treated as privilege. It's just kind of like contractual waiver across the board. Um, and it keeps me up at night in part because it's like, it's such a low tech thing, right? Low tech meaning old tech, I guess. Um, people would just kind of assume like, well, of course, like you should be able to email your lawyer and your litigation adversary should not get to just read those things when they want to. And by the way, they want to. Um, and so we've, we've been working on this project. And I think one of the things that opened my eyes to is that when you're dealing with tech in the criminal legal system, sometimes the conversation that is most pressing, um, that is most important to outcomes for people who've been accused of crimes are the ones that are like the least sexy and the oldest, right? So actually, um, Nate and I at the ACLU have talked about this a bunch where he's like, well, we've been litigating lo location information for 25 years. And I'm like, great. Every week I get a call from a public defender who's like, the biggest problem in my case is location information, right? They, they are interested in facial recognition. They are interested in AI. They are interested in cutting edge issues. But they're like, every single day, this is the thing that puts my client in prison, right? This is the thing that we don't know how to like, litigate in a meaningful way. And so a lot of, in the like, teaching students hard, complicated things, um, or being honest with them, right? Being really truthful about what are the issues you're gonna work on. Sometimes I'm like, it's gonna be email. Also, it's gonna be like, professional responsibility and thinking through attorney-client privilege. Because if your client like is held in a facility 2,800 miles away from you, do you really think that you're gonna be able to fly and then spend half a day getting into the jail to see your client for 20 minutes and then you have to like get out and then fly home, you're not gonna have meaningful access to your clients at that point, right? You can't have the sort of privileged conversations you need. By the way, that's all like, if you can run the traps to even get a visit on the books. Um, and the facility isn't shut down, and like problem after problem after problem, right? So I think sometimes for me, those are things that keep me personally up at night, but in the spirit of like being honest and open with your students, I think there are a lot of students who are just like, well, it shouldn't be this way. I'm like, I hear you. <laughs> like, I absolutely, I get it, I am with you, but this is a thing that I have spent the last six and a half years fighting and pushing back against. Um, we like rewrote a federal bill. It passed the House three times. Well, most recently in a 414 to 11 vote. And we still can't get the like federal legislation passed because senators have honestly told us to our face, it's not that we think you're wrong, it's that it's very small potatoes. Why would I spend political capital to try to get this tiny thing that feels like a technical fix passed when I want to fight some other political battle, right? Um, and that struggle of like, the day-to-day -day lawyering or the meaningful lawyering that can change people's lives may not be the sexiest thing. It may actually be quite low stakes. It may be quite old school. It's no less important. Mm. Like, where do you find the passion and the drive to kind of keep pushing, keep trying to find a new, you know, how can I end run around this nine more times until we finally can secure this, like, I don't know. By the time we get attorney-client privilege and email, there's going to be some other communication that is, like, the norm and then we're gonna have to fight the battle all over again, right? Um, I can go next. I, you know, keep me up at night question made me think of two, two separate things. Um, first, kind of jumping off where I'm at teaching this class in, at, at UCLA, 
it really focuses on kind of 20 years of post 9-11 national security cases. And um, it's depressing. It's a depressing class <laughs> because there's not a lot of victories. Um, and even the victories, you know, part of, part of what we do in the class is even interrogate the victories and, and ask whether they actually are victories. Um, and, you know, just as an example, you know, a couple of the, the actual positive stories are detention cases that came to good results. But in the end, you know, when you take a step back, um, people got released and, you know, it came to a happy ending, but the government was able to continually detain people without justification for two years while you litigated that, you know? And so from the government's perspective, it was three couple years of detention. So um, I think part of, you know, what I've learned doing, you know, putting that class together and talking about it with students is, um, what, wor what worries me now is sort of 20 years of no accountability for any of the things that, that happened in those 20 years and, and wondering what that does to sort of our political society um, and the law going forward. Because it is, it is very hard to find ways to inspire students to, to look forward and be like, I'm going to be able to make a difference in these particular issues going forward when a lot of that activity ended in failure. So. Um, that's on the, on, the, on, on the national security side. On the more tech side, um, and we, I was fortunate enough to come to a guest speaking spot in the, in the clinic yesterday, and we kind of talked about this, but I think wondering whether Carpenter was a bookend or like an open door is a real big open question right now, um, and in two ways, two, two particular contexts. One, just, just in case people aren't as familiar as Carpenter, do you want to sure, yeah. Yeah, um, sum it up? Figure this is a tech clinic crowd, but uh, yeah, just in case, just in case. Yeah, so Carpenter was a case from um, half a decade ago, uh, where the Supreme Court held that, notwithstanding the, the third party doctrine, um, the long term collection of cell site location information via cell phone providers was a Fourth Amendment search and required a warrant, um, and because it sort of avoided the third party doctrine um, in a case that seemed to call for this straightforward application of the third party doctrine, I think it raised a lot of questions of whether, um, as John Roberts wrote in the opinion, it was narrow and it didn't touch the reasoning of other cases and other kinds of information, or whether um, advocates could sort of leverage the fact of its, you know, the, of its results um, to open the door to sort of argue about aggregation of other kinds of uh, private information and whether that sort of theory holds water going forward. And so um, we've been, you know, the ACLU for now five years since Carpenter has been um, involved in these poll camera cases, uh, which involve aggregation, but not of movements, just of, you know, actual video of people's private homes, outside their homes, you know, cameras just kind of trained for six, seven, eight months um, at an individual's uh, private space, even though it's technically, you know, visible to the public, and so these are cameras that are either on like small trailers that get moved around, or they're on top of like light poles, which is why they're called pole cams. Yeah. They just they're temporarily stationary, focused in one direction. Yeah. They're a bunch in Washington Square Park. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the logic of Carpenter seems to point very clearly that like the aggregation of this kind of private information over a really long period of time should be a Fourth Amendment search, but for, you know, who knows what reasons, the court has not taken a series of, I think, pretty, pretty strong cert petitions to decide that question. And so 
Uh, it has us wondering, like, is, is Roberts done? Is this court done sort of pushing the boundaries of privacy? Which, you know, over a decade, I think there is a real strong story that the court was um, doing a lot to update the Fourth Amendment in the sort of digital age. Um, but is that the end of the road, or, or will, you know, one day the court sort of go even further? So I think that's a big question. The other, um, which was one of the last clinic projects I worked on, is uh, the geofence warrant reverse warrant issue, which for those who don't know, this is where the cops go to Google and say, give me the location information of anyone who was in this, they can literally draw sort of a map around whatever they're looking for, give a time frame, and then um, go through a process with Google where they get the location information and then eventually you know, more information about people who were in that area during that particular time. And I remember you know, I mean, this is one of the hardest issues for the ACLU to develop a position. We were sort of frozen for a while on this um, because it involves location information, but it's a much shorter time period than Carpenter, so the, the pure law, even the aggregation sort of logic of Carpenter doesn't really work, um, but elements of Carpenter come into play, you know, the retrospective nature of it, the fact that it tracks against everyone, um, and that it can be sort of Know, it's sort of harvested in bulk by the cell phone companies or, or Google. Um, so I remember like going through those conversations of how, how are we going to actually kind of make a legal argument here. And with the students, I think one thing that, you know, working on an amicus brief in that case, um, which is going up to the Fourth Circuit next month, um, and has been the focus of a lot of public interest organization efforts and advocacy, and is going to be argued by the NICDL and Mike Price um, next month. Um, is you know focusing those trying to find ways for policy arguments like reasons that we find this objectionable finding a way to, to get those in like doctrinally um, and I think with the students I remember having so many conversations about starting from the point of what do we not like about this you know what are the harms that might be caused by this rather than how are we gonna how are we gonna argue you know how are we gonna use carpenter in this particular context and sort of backing in and and realizing that Law and tech, I mean, it's one of the most obvious areas where sort of society and the values of, of um, society play into how the law develops, you know? And I think the pressures from society is why we got that decade of great privacy decisions from the Supreme Court. Um, and so I think maybe more than, you know, I mean, certainly it's an area I practice and I focus on, so it feels like this, but maybe more than any other area, the, the sort of conversation around values and effects of technology really, really do inform the, the way that the law um, heads in that, in, that, um, in that arena. And so I think a lot of people have their eye on that particular kind of technique because it does sort of bring together all these things, right? Corporate collection of data, um, third-party doctrine issues, uh, you know, sensitivity of location information, um, over the short term, so it's it's really like something that I think when you talk to people about what bothers them about you know particular techniques, people have a really negative reaction to it, um, and so I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out, whether the law actually recognizes how society actually feels about that kind of technique. What are we doing with with copyright and privacy? That's what I think about all the time. And it started when I was a student in Chris Brigman's class. I wrote my student note. At that exact intersection, I said, 
People are trying to criminalize non-consensual intimate imagery, and I'm really concerned about expanding the criminal legal system to deal with feminist goals and whether that's even possible. So why don't we use copyright infringement to say, if these images are selfies, and a survey said that 80% of those images were selfies, why can't those victims use the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to get their images removed? And I had the privilege of working on that project for the clinic. A number of students actually advised a coalition of domestic violence direct service providers on how to get their clients' images removed from the internet using both platform policies and the DMCA. But I was like a 21-year-old law student. I had no idea that I was wandering into like a decades-old debate about the intersection of privacy and technology and copyright. My bad. Um, nobody, nobody warned me. Um, it's fine. He's in the back. Um, but that ended up being the next trajectory of my career. I wrote about artificial intelligence and why we needed fair use for fairer AI, which is coming to pass in all of the copyright infringement lawsuits. But the inverse of that is people's public but semi-private information is being scraped to inform these algorithms, which people have a lot of understandably mixed feelings about. Then I wrote about face surveillance, and I said, well, the local legislation that's getting enacted is really piecemeal, and it's exactly where you would expect it to be enacted. Where we really need it is the states where it's never going to be enacted because the police presence and the carceral legal system are too strong. We could use copy. We could use copyright law, smack a bandaid on it, um, and and call it a solution. Or we could use right of publicity, as Jason has suggested, another form of intellectual property to target this problem. And I don't feel like the answer has gotten any easier. I've done clinic projects on all three of those pieces of um, scholarship that I've written for open knowledge organizations, domestic violence coalitions, for abolitionist organizations, a real spectrum of organizations. Um, and the answer doesn't seem to be so easy and flexible as what I thought it might have been when I was a law student. Um, I thought that the answer was really obvious. Use it when it makes sense and don't use it when it doesn't make sense. And that's kind of what I've done with my scholarship, but I'm not sure that that's the actual right answer. Um, and I'm really curious to see where students who have learned about these projects through their scholarship, what they end up doing with it. Are they going to use it in their practices? Are they going to use it when they go to work at non, like nonprofit organizations or in government? Or like, what shape is this going to take? And so that's one of the things that keeps me up at night is because I worry that I gave them a very dangerous weapon and no shield. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, we haven't talked about this, but I, in tracking the uh, the Screen Actors Guild settlement with yes. the studios that just happened, or settlement agreement, uh, these issues were super, super contentious okay. and at the heart of the disagreement. In fact, I think the last three offers they rejected were all about yep. this question. Uh, in particular, um, I mean, right at the intersection of, of privacy, right publicity, copyright, and AI around, you know, the A-list actors having certain rights, and then as you go down, I mean, I, I guess this reverse, it's like, it's weird, it's like the, the top is like F level, and then it goes down, but like the, the, the famous actors get certain rights, and then if you're not quote-unquote famous in certain ways... The F is for famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> I, that's how I can remember, thank you. Perfect. Um, but no, just like this idea that like within these microcosms of negotiations are embedded all these issues that will ultimately set the rules for all of us, right? Yeah. I think it's... it's Sort of a theme, actually, kind of across. Um, all right, so we have a few more minutes before we're going to take our first break and get to socialize and chat and whatever, but I just wanted to open it up. We have two microphones here. Um, if anyone, I mean, I have lots of 
questions and things to chat about um, with each other. But if anyone wants to come up and ask a question or share a comment or thought about your own connection to the clinic or teaching or any of these things, um, the mics are open and you're welcome to do so. Oh, yeah. All right. Here we go. Nice. Excited. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do have to say, well, per Peter's cue, you have to say that you are someone. I am somebody. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi, everyone. My name is Melody. You may know me as Mel as well. Um, I am currently a legal research fellow with the Knowing Machines Research Project out of Engelberg Center um, and also a supervising attorney with the Tech Law and Policy Clinic here at NYU. Um, and I have had the pleasure of working with so many people here. This is just so cool and awesome. Um, my question is maybe a little too nuts and boltsy about clinics, but I'm a little curious, especially because we have like two founders of clinics here on this panel, and then we have people who've gotten in like early in, in my mindset. Um, so some of you have mentioned that some of the issues that come up and that your students work on are like old um, and maybe students don't realize that that's that might be the issues that they're working on in the clinic especially because more recently there's just like so much hype and coverage of each new successive technology um, I was in the clinic about five years ago and that was starting to happen then like Cambridge Analytica like that scandal kind of broke in my second semester of my first year of law school. And so I think that was one of those zeitgeisty moments where everyone was watching Mark Zuckerberg like try to blink um, in, in front of Congress. Um, so I guess my question is a little bit about balancing different interests. So if you have a clinic, you have like a lot of different stakeholders in institutionally, I could say. You have the students who like we like to think of as hopefully the focus of the clinic. But then there are all these other moving pieces, like there's obviously um, other clinical faculty, there are non-clinical faculty, there are deans, there are all these other kind of institutional considerations when you're affiliated with a law school. So I'm just kind of curious how, if those tensions come up, like how do you kind of posture your clinic or your clinical work differently for different audiences? And if you have any advice for people who are interested in pursuing clinical teaching, um, or maybe like having Jason's job one day, as Amanda said, <laughs> um, hypothetically speaking. Um, what, what could that look like? Like how do you navigate those slightly different audiences and your messaging? It depends on if you're on the job market or if you're trying to attract students is the TLDR. Um, I think if you are trying to make a pitch to a faculty that they need this clinic, I hope that the work that so many other clinicians have done across this country, including a number in the room, have made that kind of a foregone conclusion that every, every law school should have an IP clinic that does tech work. Um, and I think that the work of Cynthia Dahl or, and- Or not IP. Yeah, or not IP. <laughs> I think, I think I don't both do any are IP true. work, just to be clear. That's, but your clinic does. My clinic does, but not me. Yes, that's true. Not everyone has to do the, the IP work. Not everyone has to do the privacy work, but there should be a clinic where students can find that home. And Virginia Phillips's work and Cynthia Dahl's work um, shows you that there's now over 100 strong clinics in the country doing IP and or tech work. And if your school is not among them, that is a, frankly, an outlier. And so I feel like that is a strong push. And I think that also reaching out to student organizations and figuring out what students want. Like, 
The students at Berkeley were proactive. The students at NYU were proactive. The students at Georgetown were somewhat proactive, as, as I understand <laughs> it. I wasn't, I wasn't in those conversations. Um, but I think that figuring out if there's a real student need there is also true, because I, I believe that if you build it, they will come. But it's also really helpful if they're already there. And then in terms of marketing it to other people, I think that students will see the value because they want to be part of this. And I think that so many of us had the experience of saying, yes, tech, but how? Or yes, tech, but where? And I think that the clinic can be a perfect home for answering those like journalistic five questions. Um, and messaging that can be really effective. And then the other thing that I think Jason has done really well is he's like a, a, a very key intellectual peer of his colleagues on the doctrinal side. That's not for every clinician. Not every clinician cares about what their doctrinal colleagues are doing or cares that their doctrinal colleagues understand what they're doing. But I think that was something you were looking for in community because you had it at Berkeley and you realized that it was a rarity. And when you found it at NYU, you were, you were like, problem solved. Like, this is, <laughs> this is quite dandy. And like, that was something that I really soaked up like a sponge and I didn't realize how important it was to me until I was interviewing schools. And I said it that way intentionally, I was interviewing schools. Um, and I found that at Georgetown, they, all the tech faculty, all 18 of them, which is a hilarious number, mm. understood what I was trying to do in my clinic. They took it seriously. They realized it was important. They realized I was filling a need and they realized that I was the right person to do dope work. And so if you can find that camaraderie among your colleagues on the other side of the faculty, I think that can go a really long way into making a successful clinic. And like we, we've spoken to Jeannie and Barton. We spoke to Barton for a matter just this year. Um, and having that kind of relationship with faculty at your own institution and other institutions can also enrich the student experience incredibly and create better work product for clients. Stakeholders. Stakeholders. <laughs> Stakeholders. I what I would also add is, so one of the things I learned to do in the clinic, and I, it's one of those like, I was probably learning it for a while, but it wasn't until, it actually was Lee. Lee Rowland was like, okay, so here's the thing. Sometimes being a lawyer, just brass tacks, you have to look and figure out like, what are your values? What is your work? What are you doing? And who are you talking to? And if, it, like, if you're talking to libertarians about surveillance, they do not care about like, most of the things you care about, and that's fine. That doesn't mean there's not a partnership there. It means you focus on the carceral system's really expensive. Isn't that a bummer? Don't you want to spend less money on that? <laughs> Those are wow. equally important things to think about, but in the conversation, you don't have to say like, I care about this because, and that's why you should also care about it. Everybody's different, everybody's got their own views, right? And so one of the things I learned in the clinic that is translated into how I talk about my work, either in a room like this, or with students, or with colleagues, most of whom, most of whom were like, I don't know what you're talking about, is figure out like who you are what your work is, what it does, and then also think about your audience and talk to them in terms that will get them interested and that they care about. And that does mean that sometimes you will talk about the same project or the same work product in 12 different voices, right? None of them, they should all be sincere. They should all be honest. Like, don't say shit you don't mean. But like, that doesn't always mean you're having the exact same conversation. And I will also say the benefit, and I learned this in the clinic and I keep learning it because it's a lesson that I apparently keep forgetting, is in being able to do that, I am a better advocate. Um, I also see different sides of an issue and sometimes I'm like, oh, that's like a whole benefit that I just 
it, it didn't occur to me because that's not the reason I came into this work, but it is an important thing, right? There is another thing on the table. So I think that, you know, communication being a, a key value is make it as easy as you can for whoever you want to give you a thing, make it as easy as possible for them to give it to you, right? And that may mean you focus on this issue area or that, you know, that's a part of your work, or maybe you talk about something else, right? You find a different way to bond. So in taking clinic lessons and putting them into action, I think that that's, when I'm talking to students, sometimes I'm talking about a very different set of things than when I am talking to my like emeritus professor office neighbor who, who like is delightful, but what drives him is not the racial justice aspect of the work that I do, right? He's like, oh, that's interesting. Can we talk about this other thing? And I'm like, yeah, sure, we talk about the other thing too. So. Well, I'll, I'll just say a few things, and then uh, there's food, which I've always learned is, you know, you get people to the food as fast as possible. Um, uh, yeah, look, I mean, I mean, Melody and I talk about this, too, in a bunch of different ways, uh, but, I mean, the kind of work has to be meaningful, and what meaningful means to everyone is a little different, or a lot different, and I think that's kind of, you know, part of what we're talking about here. But it especially has to be meaningful to the students, right? Like, this is just a thing that I've learned over the years, too, but, like, what's so obvious is that, you know, I remember what it's like to be a student. I remember, like, there are classes you show up at or not or whatever, and, like, there's things. But there's a reason, hopefully, that you came to law school, and there's still something there for you when you are in law school. And when students do the work and they care, I mean, there's just nothing better. Like, I just have to say, like, that's the thing that always keeps me going because it feels meaningful. It feels like it's real, and that's why we need real clients and real matters, and like you can't phone it in on your side either, right? You can't give them something that doesn't matter or that, you know, that it doesn't mean it doesn't, it's not frustrating, right? It could definitely be like hard or difficult. You can have clients who disappear. You can have all kinds of challenges, right? But that's also real as well. And so, um, you know, in the end, I think that carries over into the institution in a number of different ways. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing I'll just say is that, um, we're very fortunate, I think, in clinics across the board that clinicians themselves, I think, really value the work that, as they see technology impacting whatever their particular clinic does, more and more, I think they see that as a really valuable thing for these types of clinics to work on with them in collaboration. But also the non-clinical faculty, a lot of them either took clinics or see the work that clinics do or they want to have a bigger impact on the world and things like that. So there is some sort of, I think, intersection with all that. But fundamentally, uh, yeah, I think it's like students who want to do meaningful work and you find them and you connect them to the work. That for me has always been the key. So. And with that, wanna, please help me thank the panel. Awesome. The Engelberg Center Live podcast is a production of the Engelberg Center on Innovation, Law and Policy at NYU Law and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Our theme music is by Jessica Batke and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license.